Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus. Stay chill or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Now look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Adam Kempinar. Josh is still on the road trying to sell those books, Michael. you got to do what you can. Michael and, Phillips is here. And find himself. I think he, he, really, he really went on the road to find himself. Why else do you set out on the road? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for stopping by to help us close out the marathon. You helped us start the Vincent Minnelli Marathon. Well, we opened the curtain, yes. a beautifully appointed curtain, I'm sure, in Minnelli's hands, and now we're closing it. Yeah, we'll yeah. see how our choreography does here and whether or not we have any chemistry. Good. Together. I like it. We will get to our review of Some Came Running in just a moment. We first want to remind you that our partner for this Minnelli Marathon is Mubi. An algorithm has no business choosing your films. Mubi is a curated online cinema streaming exceptional films from around the globe every day. They pick a new gem and you have one month to watch it. You can also delve deeper into the films with exclusive interviews, video essays, and critical reviews over at Mubi's Notebook. A couple new to Mubi films to highlight this week. Karame from 2010. It's their latest in a Chinese independent special, a series which spotlights groundbreaking documentaries that have recently come out of China, often produced against the will of the state despite unimaginable risks in order to tell their stories. This is a documentary that confronts the tragic fire that forever altered life in the village of Karame, banned in its home country to this day. The scope of the film's length is carried by its will to listen to the victims' families with their rare, enveloping patience. Mubi says it's essential. It certainly sounds like it. They also started its retrospective of films by German director Angela Schanelek, whom Mubi describes as one of the most important yet underseen contemporary directors. The retrospective starts with 2001's Passing Summer. You can check those films out now. Just go to Mubi.com slash filmspotting. That's M-U-B-I dot com slash filmspotting to start your free trial. And with that, let's get to Frank Sinatra and Martha Heyer in 1958's Some Came Running. Where do you want me to drop you? I don't. I must. I really do have papers to correct. I like the way you do your hair. I have a feeling you're running away from something or after something. Of course, you'd have to know which it is before you could discover what it is. 
You also got fascinating eyes. I have a theory that writers create to compensate for some lack in their personal lives. It's because we need to be stimulated. It smells good. What is it? It's a bug repellent. Do you like it? If I'm remembering that scene correctly, Michael, Frank Sinatra, uncomfortably close to Martha Heyer. Very close in the front seat. <laughs> Very close. Uh, Not the only uncomfortable moment with Frank Sinatra and an actress in this film. No, no. It's, uh, it's full of them. It, that's right. And and, and the, the woman we, we just heard from, uh, uh, Gwen, is the, the small town Indiana local intellectual. She's the, she's the English teacher and uh, teaches creative writing and criticism. And, and Dave, played by Sinatra, is, is the novelist wrestling with writer's block and self-loathing. He's come back home for the first time in 14 years. Uh, after knocking around, just got out of the military. Yeah, yeah, and he's knocked around oil fields and all kinds of things. He's just trying to find, trying to find himself, like Josh <laughs> on the road, right? And and yes, and, and this is <laughs> this is one of the most fifties of all the fifties sounding dialogue exchanges in Some Came Running. It's <laughs> yeah. not necessarily why I love the film, but it's it, it's definitely emblematic of the of the Madonna whore complex. Mm. Uh, at the heart of it, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. There really is a lot going on there, just in terms of sensuality and sexual appetite it's at the core of a lot of what's going on in this film i really want to hear what you love about this movie in a moment but to get the discussion rolling we are going to hear as we have for every film in this marathon from nathaniel in indiana hey guys one of the things i'm grateful for with these marathons is the way that they can upend my expectations and expose my misconceptions This has certainly been the case with Minnelli, whom I knew only as a director of fairly light and optimistic musicals. But with Some Came Running, I once again found myself surprised by its cynicism and by its fairly unforgiving critique of small-town America. The film felt less like Meet Me in St. Louis and more like Meet Me in St. Louis by way of The Bad and the Beautiful. Which is not to say that, for me, this film is perhaps quite as good as either of those other two, Some plot turns felt at times a little overly convenient, for example, not least in the relationship between Sinatra's Dave and Martha Heyer's Gwen, which takes a lot of quick turns, many of which feel unearned, I think, because her character isn't all that clearly defined. And the film does present an uncomfortably outdated masculinity. I realize that this helps create complicated characters that suit this film's particular worldview, but if we're supposed to sympathize at all with Sinatra as he navigates these two worlds he doesn't quite fit in, his aggressive behavior towards Hire, and even more so his absolute cruelty towards Shirley MacLaine's Ginny, makes that at times a challenging task. But of course, part of that is because among the very best elements of this film is clearly Shirley MacLaine, whose performance is just so moving in its emotional openness. And once again, Minnelli proves his great talent as a visual stylist, no better than in the scene when McLean confronts Hire in the classroom. I knew I shouldn't have come, but... Oh, I'm very crazy about him, you see, Miss French. And this is the God's truth. I want him to have what he wants, even if it means you instead of me. Well, I assume Mr. Hirsch discussed me with you, otherwise you wouldn't be here. Oh, no, that's not so. Oh, he never said nothing. I kept asking him and asking him, but he never said nothing. Here and in Terre Haute and Indianapolis, but he never said nothing. You were on that trip? Yeah. Oh, but he ain't in love with me, Miss French. I wish he was. I'd give my right eye if he was. 
The widescreen at first conveys the vast gulf between the two characters, only to then break and offer a close and sympathetic gaze to McLean in her tears, while keeping Hire's relatively cold and rigid character at a clear distance. It's magnificent stuff. But, speaking of classrooms, I'm also ready to have Professor Phillips school me on everything I've missed in this film. In the meantime, Adam, thanks to you and to Josh for another really terrific and really rewarding marathon experience. It's been an absolute pleasure. I'm looking forward to your thoughts this week and for the awards next week. See ya. Great stuff once again from Nathaniel. I'm putting him on notice right now, Michael, that when we do get to our Manelli Marathon Awards, which we're planning to call them the Garlands, why not? <laughs> excellent. Right? Excellent. I think Nathaniel's idea to call them the Garlands, what would this marathon be without him? I'm putting him on notice right now. He's going to have to come on. He's going to have to share his picks. He's Absolutely. not done. His work is not over. It's just starting. Yeah, You've just done starting. the heavy lifting. You've already laid out the syllabus for That's a six-week course on Manelli. There you go. He's just going to yank it out right no, out from under you. Can't happen. But any general responses, thoughts to Nathaniel's take and thoughts on the film? And tell us what you do love about something. Where do you begin? Running. I mean, you know, he's he's really astute on, on what's strong about Manelli, especially visually, I think. And uh, no one shot... And that includes all the masters working in Hollywood at the time. No one shot better widescreen cinemascope compositions than Minnelli, period, I think. Now, it doesn't doesn't mean that every film he shot in that form, and not that many, uh, worked or mm-hmm. were, were successful. You look at Brigadoon or Kismet. Well, rather, you should not look at Brigadoon or Kismet. <laughs> and uh, this is – Some Came Running is the best, though. It's the best widescreen melodrama he ever shot. And – it's based on a truly terrible book by James Jones, and this is James that Jones. That doesn't surprise me. It's, it's a, I mean, it's twelve hundred pages long, and it's the, it's a, it's a book about a writer, a self-loathing, pretty unsympathetic writer, as Nathaniel mentioned, mm-hmm. played in the movie by Sinatra. Uh, the writer is struggling with his sophomore slump, and he cannot get the second novel out, and it's a novel. Written uh, and and a, and uh, a living evidence of a sophomore slump about a writer dealing with sophomore slump. Right, James Jones a huge success with From Here to Eternity, which turned into a you know a major motion picture. Nineteen fifty three, Fred Zinnemann won Best Picture at the Oscars, and uh, you know the book was a huge success, and there was a great deal of anticipation for James Jones's follow up, and then critically derided. Nobody read it. It's full of risible stereotypes and sort of sexual perversities as far as Jones could take him in that this is one of these, uh, let's rip the lid off the hypocrisies of small town life and Mm -hmm. show what a bunch of peeping Toms and uh, repressed virgins like Gwen, the school teacher, and and all these people. Just frauds. Frauds and sexually fraught and thwarted or else they're tramps and, you know, quote, pigs, unquote, which is exactly what Sinatra calls. Dean Martin uh, calls him, yeah. And uh, Sinatra and Dean Martin, who plays Bama Dillard, the gambler who's, who pals around with the Sinatra character, uh, calls the Shirley MacLaine character. It is not, and Nathaniel's right, it is not easy to stomach some of this because, you know, it, was it accepted more readily back then? Just, oh, well, he's calling, he's calling so-and-so a pig. Yes, of course. And I can't really hold some came running up to anything like the light we look at in 2018 it's the whole movie flunks the me too movement okay sure <laughs> but and, yeah, yeah we can talk about that yeah, a little yeah. bit sure but what i what i think you have here is is one of the great for me one of the great adaptations of a truly lousy book 
And and that's kind of a long list in Hollywood. A lot of very good movies, uh, and certainly I think this is that. Uh, and certainly I think Something Running is a very good movie. You come from really kind of awful second-rate mechanical material. And they found a way in the adaptation to streamline it, strip it for parts, and get this, you know, and telescope the action from, it used to be three years mm-hmm. in the novel, and it's down just to a, a few weeks where Dave Hirsch, the struggling writer, comes back home to Parkman, Indiana. It was Parkman, Illinois in the novel, uh, to, to just kind of like reconnect uneasily with his brother, who's a very kind of like, you know, uh, appearance conscious um, jewelry store owner, played by Arthur Kennedy, who was Oscar nominated, in fact. And uh, and then he's got these two women in his life, and that's that's simply the novel. That's right. it. It's 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 a, a what I love about it visually is that Minnelli is shooting on location. They shot three weeks in Madison, Indiana. Sinatra was going crazy every day, just sort of bored. Wanted to go up to Chicago to gamble and run around and you know that. But there he was, kind of locked in while Minnelli was painstakingly working out his compositions for the, you know, for the town fair climax. And he wanted to move. Do you, do you know the story? No. Where he, Manelli wanted to be, they spent all day kind of setting up this shot, this nighttime shot with a ton of extras. And it's the big action climax where one of the characters gets killed. And uh, Manelli said, you know, I got to move that Ferris wheel six <laughs> feet. And Sinatra said, I'm going to Chicago and I'm not going to finish this picture. Really? And he took off. And then, you know, Manelli was like, ah, you know. <laughs> and, and they got him back, and they actually finished the picture ahead of schedule, but it was very frosty. And, uh, and yet, I think Manelli got a truly good performance in a truly unsympathetic role out of Sinatra. And I think the interplay between Sinatra and Dean Martin, you know, they certainly never, never got anything nearly as good in all the films they made later. Hmm. I think Manelli shooting on location and yet lighting a lot of the shots, especially the nighttime ones, as if he were in the Hollywood studio. So you have right. this patently mm-hmm. artificial expressionistic, crazy sort of uh, artifice going on in real locations gives the movie a very, very unique tension, I think. And yeah. I, I'm, I, it's garish, cheap melodrama, <laughs> and I'm pretty much in the bag for it okay. the whole way. I what, wish what I was. What else can I say? <laughs> I wish I was you, yeah, you've been, with you, you've been, Michael. I know. No, I, you know, once again, I'm, I'm with Nathaniel in a lot of his thoughts, but one of them being just sort of maybe a general dissatisfaction with the movie. And I'll get to the fact that I still think it's absolutely worth seeing and worth discussing. Right. It better be because we're going to talk about it for 15 or 20 more minutes probably. I, I'm ready. But you kind of alluded to this in terms of setting up the basic story here. I was about maybe an hour into the film, had to pause it for a second. And while I paused it, I sent Sam a note that just said, what is some came running? Because at that point I really didn't know what it was as a movie or what it was leading to. I hadn't read any plot synopsis. Didn't, didn't have any sense of what the film was about. Honestly, at all, I knew it had Sinatra in it and Shirley MacLaine. And he gets to Parkman. If you trust the way the movie sets it up, not, by his own choice, he just ends up on a bus. He's put there by his his army buddies or whatever. Back in Chicago. Sent, yeah, yeah, back in Chicago, and he's sent back home. So he has no objective. I'm watching that Sinatra character, Dave, the whole time thinking, well, he must have some angle he's trying to play. He really doesn't. Nope. He just kind of rolls with the punches. He drifts and, in, he And drifts a lot out. happens to him. So there's really no objective for the main character. And so maybe the movie felt a little aimless to me, though a lot does happen. So you, you're I like our, you're like Arthur Miller. You need you need a clear objective for your protagonist. I think I do, unfortunately, or okay, a little right. bit, a all little right. bit more of one. That's exactly right. So I don't really I don't really love the way most of it's staged. We'll get to some of the best stuff though. You touched on the the truly great 
carousel, that Ferris wheel and that that expressionistic sequence at the end, I think really is a wonder. And I'll acknowledge that even though I'm sitting here saying I struggled with this movie, there are people I follow on Letterboxd who I greatly respect who adore this film. Mm -hmm. Labuza, Michael Casey, both gave it four stars. Max O'Connell, who's been on the show, four and a half stars. Sean Gilman, Jake Cole, Keith Phipps from The Next Picture Show, five stars. So there, there is a lot of appreciation out there for this film. I'm not in that company. And yet, as I said, totally worth seeing and discussing because it does, at least to me, Michael, feel personal. It feels like Minnelli. He's not just cranking out some piece of material here. This is something that he has internalized and then he has tried to externalize and bring it to the screen. <laughs> yeah. And so it's fascinating at times. It's frustrating at times. But I do think this is a great film to conclude this marathon with because it seems to me just based on what we've seen, based on what we've learned about Minnelli that you've helped guide us through. It's really about this central Minnelli dilemma, which is reconciling one's personal and professional lives. And Drilling down into that even more, because that's pretty general, mm -hmm. reconciling one's own reprehensible behavior and actions with their intentions or, or maybe the person they think they are or think they want to be. And even one's doubts in their own talents. This question about sort of what you can get away with because you're a so-called talented artist. Tortured you're the, artist. You're yes. the tortured artist. <laughs> yeah. this, 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 this man who has those appetites we heard about in that scene between Dave and Gwen. But then... Underneath that all is this question that maybe Manelli's asking, which is, okay, that's great if you live a life where you purport yourself to be the tortured artist right. who then tries to get away with things that maybe he shouldn't. But what if you at your core don't feel like you're really that talented? What if you feel like you're a phony? What if you feel like you're a fraud like Dave clearly does and, and in this Jim, movie? As Jim Jones did. A, a, maybe Rightly so, so okay. because the novel was no good. <laughs> <laughs> but there is that key line in the movie, I think, where it seems like a throwaway line but actually really resonated with me. It's when the Sinatra character says – a little talent to a writer. And he's talking to Gwen here, who is a creative writing teacher right. and really appreciates his work. And she says something to him about, no, you, you've got some talent. And he says, a little talent to a writer means about as much as a little talent to a brain surgeon. Hmm. It's such a great line yeah, because you're right. Line. You don't, you don't want the brain surgeon who, who, you know, maybe has a little bit of a knack for right. it. No, right. he's, he's got to be an expert. He's got to be the one who knows he or she exactly what they're doing. And in the case of a writer, if you are that writer, I'm guessing most of them feel the same way. Any kind of artist feels like, what's the point if you're just that little bit talented right. one? And, and otherwise, you feel like you're wasting your life. You're, you're wasting kind of the essence of who you are, which is at the core, I think, of Dave's struggle. Yeah, and I think Manelli, I think, thought through some of that. And I think in, uh, in other ways, he kind of disregarded the, the mechanics of the plot because it, even though it is a melodrama, it is not a plot-driven piece. I mean, it, it takes its time. It wanders around. It really does just sort of, as you say, kind of like, like sort of wander around this town mm -hmm. with Dave Hirsch, the Sinatra character. And I think it's useful to talk a little bit about Some Came Running and Manelli's melodramas in relation to Douglas Sirk's melodramas made around the same time, mostly earlier, um, because I think they're both skeptical of the stories they're telling and the attitudes being expressed, especially hmm. by the conventional male leads. I think they're I think they're much more sympathetic to the female characters, even though even though in Some Came Running they're both treated very very archly. 
And that's that. It certainly is it a weakness? Yes, probably. Is it a is it a stamp of its time and place and era and the mores and attitudes of Hollywood at the time? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. But I think I think that's how I look at some came running. I think Manelli is not sending it up in any way, but I right. think he's really skeptical about the story he has to tell. And I think he's finding what he wants to find and what he's interested in yeah. in the corners and mm-hmm. sort of the dark shadows of this thing and uh, and just and just letting the actors kind of take it. So, you know, I, I don't I can't claim that it's a great film. I can I can only claim that I think there's a weird kind of ambition and grace in in a lot of it, and yeah. and and uh, I also just think that when you look at a scene like the long take, which runs two and a half minutes without a cut, of Sinatra and McLean getting off the yeah, Greyhound, that's another pulling into town. Great touch. I mean, that's a great scene. That it is, is that is a two minute yep. short film that yep. is perfect. And they're talking about the drunken revels the night before up in Chicago, and she's referring to. You know, him as well. You know, I'm, I'm your girl now. So, and he's like, oh, my God, what, what, what's happened? Baby, it's a little early for... Uh... Well, I like that. You ask a person to come on a trip with you and Hold then it, you... hold it, hold it. I asked you. Well, if you didn't, you don't think I would have come, do you? What am I, a tramp or something? Gilly's Green Room, Chicago. I was with Raymond. Raymond. Raymond? I saw you took a poke at Oh, yeah. I'd like to forget it. Gee, Dave, you know, you sure was sweet to me. Uh, uh, look, sweetie You know pie. something? I would kind of like to have a soft bed. What do you say that, uh, what do you say? We go rest up and, and after that, then we go meet your family. You know, that's just about the highest compliment that a fella can pay his girl. Oh, Ask him to meet his folks. Look, 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 uh, sweetie. Um, I feel a badly about this, but this is no time for a girl like you. You know, it's all, it's, yes, this setup's a little hackneyed, but, you know, he's saying things like, this is no town for a girl like you, but I don't know, the way Sinatra and, and, and McLean play that, and the way Manelli just sort of lets it sit and lets the camera kind of take it without any cuts, I don't know, I, I just think there's there's some kind of there's some kind of crystallization of what Sinatra's image was at the time when mm-hmm. he has to say lines like, well, you know, a guy gets loaded and meets a girl and look where we are. Right. But it's done with a kind of a casual, truthful, tossed off air. And I, I, I think that scene alone is why, why Some King Running is worth taking seriously. Yeah, we touched on this a little bit, that the whole movie really is about, I think, hypocrisy. And maybe it gets back to what I was saying about Minnelli and what he might be personally wrestling with here. But there are so many people in this film who are representing themselves as something other than who they really are. That Mm. is certainly his brother, Frank, who is a liar and just a phony in really every way. The only characters who seem true to themselves are these ones who are on the fringes, the ones who actually he associates himself with and becomes friendly with. Bama is Bama. It doesn't matter really even when he faces a health scare. No, he's going to be exactly who he is all the time. I think Ginny, that's the case with her too. We'll talk more about her. Gwen, I think, is someone who is a hypocrite, just like so many other people, more established people, the elite in the town. And then you've got our hero, Dave, who doesn't really know, I think, 
who he is. He, he has some sense of what he doesn't want to be, yep. and that's like his brother, like right. his family. But ultimately, he's in conflict. There is a conflict there, which I think makes him kind of our conduit. He's the middle ground between these two sides, people who have some integrity, even if they're the ones who are being excluded from everything and the ones who run everything but are ultimately the fakes. And there is a, a scene that really gets to that. Actually, it's the one Nathaniel talked about. He talked about the framing, that great scene where Shirley MacLaine's character goes and talks to Gwen, surprises her at the school. It really ends up being a key scene in the movie. And right before Ginny McLean walks in, we see and hear the teacher having this conversation with her students, a, a very pointed conversation appropriate for this movie with her students about the role of an artist and, and these men, these hard drinking men, these promiscuous <laughs> men. And she basically, you know, she, it's, so, it's so on point. It's you know? so on point. The, the teacher is able to be objective and detached and say, well, it's all worth it. It's worth it to have their work. I may not agree with who they are, but basically I can tolerate it because we got their work and it's understandable. She, she totally writes off that behavior. And so my first reaction was, you know, great job, Manelli. Thanks for giving us a scene that basically <laughs> excuses any, any tortured artist behavior, including potentially your own. But that scene really does ultimately show Gwen's own hypocrisy. As a teacher, she can detach herself. As a person, She's got that tortured artist in her life, and she really doesn't give him that slack at all. She doesn't give him that benefit of the doubt at all. So no, and look, it's, it's, a, it's an interesting argument, though, this idea that we can claim to understand the artist, but when it actually gets messy and we're the ones involved, it, it affects us personally. We don't feel the same way at all. And so he is exposing that, I think, a little bit in this one character. I think – it's also appropriate to close this marathon with this movie because we started with a quote-unquote problematic one, mm -hmm. Cabin in the Sky, and here we are, I think, ending with one. You've touched on this. Cabin, as we discussed, undeniably a genuine appreciation and celebration of black culture, also undeniably pretty racist, right? This is a movie that some came running is, I think you could argue, an indictment. I think some might be able to argue, I'm not sure if I'm totally the person cut out for it, is actually an indictment of toxic masculinity, a phrase, of course, that Minnelli and anyone else involved in this film at the time never would have used. Right, right. But it is also not just depicting, but seeming to endorse the idea that these difficult men should be able to get away with almost anything they want to, especially if they're tortured artists. Right. And really, we should just let them work through all their problems, no matter how much harm they cause. I think that the end of the film, and I'll dance around it here just a little bit in case people are listening to this and haven't seen the film and want to check it out, but the end of the movie, I think, is ground zero for how some people will respond to this film and that specific point in terms of the misogyny of the film. You have a woman at the end of this movie who truly is the one who ends up suffering. And she's not only the only non-hypocrite in the film, the only person of integrity really in this whole movie, a person who cares so much about other people, people beyond herself, that she goes and has that conversation with her rival, her so-called rival. She still cares so much about her own feelings. There's no malice in that at all. There's nothing at all about that that is her trying to get at her in any way. And yet, at the end of this movie, she's the one that's punished for her sins, right. I think. And I think that, that you could look at that two ways. You could say, okay, Minnelli, boy, he gets it. That is the way the world most often works, that the innocent, the woman in this case, is the one who's going to be the one who suffers. But 
there's something about this movie too, Michael, that just tells me it's so easy to punish her. And, and, and it only ultimately serves him. It makes her suffering at the end of this film actually makes him look better. He, he had such fondness and respect for her finally that he was able to appreciate this needy and naive woman. It, it finally yeah, brought him Yeah, but it's a around. horrible match. I mean, it's like, it is. You know, it really yeah, is. No, Sinatra's, Sinatra's, We're all rooting for them not to be together. Right. It's not, I think, I, I, again, I, I, would, I would argue that Manelli is not exactly investing a lot of optimism in that, especially because right. of the way the story is about to take it. But look, like, like a lot of 50s melodrama the, and melodrama before it, and since, this is, it's a feminist nightmare. There's no question about it. It's, it's, it's hung up completely on this Madonna whore complex, and it's never made any clearer than in that classroom scene where you have the whore visiting the Madonna, yes. the sexually repressed, you know, like lively intellectual, but completely, completely frigid. And, you know, these, these are the novel. <laughs> if you ever really want to uh, read 1,200 pages of, like, how the hell would they ever adapt this to a film? Read James Jones's <laughs> no novel. Of the, and, I mean, you have, there's so much talk about everything from Hinduism to the Kinsey Report to the fact that Dave's brother, Frank, played by Arthur Kennedy, in the novel is, is you know, having the affair with his secretary. He's shut out at home by this, you know, this, this kind of, like, seething wife. And he becomes, for many, many pages in the novel, a peeping Tom. He really? goes to other towns. So it's like every... So he doesn't just transgress. I no, mean, he becomes the perversion, a full-blown violator. Exactly. The perversions in the novel are, are really, quote, hysterical in sort of every way. But I think... And the movie, you know, acknowledges that, but it sort of asks you and almost dares you to read a little bit between the lines about what they could get away with yeah. on screen then and in, in the screenplay and what they couldn't. And that's that's a lot of it. I mean, Minnelli was coming off melodramas he made just earlier in the 50s, like The Cobweb, Tea and Sympathy, which is based on a famous play, where they had to tone down the homosexual aspects of the story uh, and just sort of play it down the middle, much as Tennessee Williams ran into the same problem in 58, same year as Some Came Running, when they adapted Cat on a Hot Tin Roof for the screen, where they had to dance around this question about Brick, Paul Newman's character. Yes. And, you know, is he, you know, what happened with Skipper back when? Uh, well, uh, nothing to do with homosexuality. <laughs> nothing, nothing. Uh, I swear to God, nothing. Uh-huh. You know? And th- this is the atmosphere. You know, you go back to King's Row in the 40s, you go back to Peyton Place, a huge scandalous success in 1957. You know, all these stories of tearing the lid off the hypocrisies and perversions of small town life you know that's that's it but you know there's something potent and irresistible about it when you have a director who can really give it the sauce you know mm-hmm. and i think when you get a scene like the scene in the writer's cabin where Sinatra has, is with Gwen and she's finally relenting and his, you know, the, mm-hmm. the Sinatra charms are working. <laughs> and then she's, but she's torn. That's one way to put it. <laughs> she's torn, you know, she doesn't know. And then it's a brightly lit daytime it's all about scene. The lighting. Yeah. And then suddenly she takes one step yes. forward and she's cast in like this kind of cavernous shadow and it's, of striking moment. It is. And Manelli's like, wake up, watch it. Now we're inside her head, you know? And you can buy it. You, you don't have to believe it. You, whatever. It is just visually staggering, I think. And that, yeah. and, and then you're out of it again. And it's almost like you dreamed it, you know? So that, that's Manelli at his best. And, and those are the three moments, we've now hit on all three, that really stood out to me. We're as done. We're the, done. Yeah, we we're are done. done because those are the wondrous moments in this film. The opening for the most part, opening widescreen shot, watching 
Frank Sinatra and Shirley MacLaine outside basically the, outside get to know bus. each other yeah, outside, outside the, the bus, bus yeah, for two, two and a half minutes. That's wonderful. That end climax, watching Ray, I think his name is, who kind of appears, he's someone who has a thing for Shirley MacLaine's character. He's the underworld, up. the underworld yeah. thug from Chicago. Right. He reappears at the end of the movie, and there are many shots, but that one of him in particular coming out of the dark walking kind of hurriedly, running right towards the camera with those lights of the the Ferris wheel going behind him. That is so striking. And then that's the other one that I would most like to go back and really just break down if you were going to do a scene study. And it makes me think, actually, Meet Me in St. Louis a little bit, Mm. where my favorite scene in that movie is the one on the staircase where Judy Garland adjusts the lighting, right? It sets up the whole mood of everything and really makes him fall in love with her in that moment by adjusting those lights. It's a lovely and here, moment, yeah. here it's Minelli, the one who's obviously doing the adjusting of the lighting, and it's not a scene of a prelude to love, but a prelude to love making. Right. But it suggests so many things. It suggests that it could be this kind of wonderful thing. It also suggests almost something sinister. Yeah. There's something there's something a little menacing because of the lighting choices too. So I did I did really appreciate what he does there. You're right, something really unnatural in an otherwise natural film. Right. And Scorsese, among others, has talked and written a lot about that climax of some kind of running. Because it is completely leaving plain old, everyday Indiana realism in the dust. Yeah, it goes goes, away. And it's much closer to like a Powell and Pressburger moment where you're getting these feverish, sort of intense, saturated colors. And it's just a different different palette, different world altogether. And Minnelli did live for that kind of thing. Now this, I don't know, I'd, I'd probably argue with you about whether or not this is a particularly personal film for him. Mm. I think for him, it's more like, okay, I'm adapt. This is my next MGM assignment. I'm adapting uh, a problematic novel by a guy who had a hit the first time, and I've got my star, Sinatra. Now, how do I fill this out? How do I cast it around sure. Sinatra and try to get something a little less ridiculous out of this novel? And I think almost every decision he made based on those initial parameters, perfect. Okay. Yep. Well, I guess I'm approaching this with a very tourist point of view, but whether consciously or not, I feel like his personality is coming through. Well, and I'm not basing absolutely. that on anything I know no, about absolutely. him. I know very little about him as a real person. I'm right. speaking just from watching his films, but there is this dichotomy that is at play in this film that's at play in a lot of these films where you do have this kind of all-knowing cynicism that just permeates this entire film, right. and then it's mixed in with this wide-eyed innocence and this sense of compassion right. that, that whether that's what Minnelli really wants to strive for or that's the material, I don't know. But there is this strong urge to reinforce this notion of love winning out and, and this idea of unconditional love, which is really at the core of this film. That key line, I think, the one where Dave has that epiphany is when McLean says, I don't understand you neither, but that doesn't mean I don't like you. Yeah. So, Unlike every other person in the film that wants to change him into their image of what he should be, she's the only one who accepts him for exactly who he is. And he responds to that. And I think really the key line that that I don't know, I wanted to maybe go so far as to say it seems like the line that in some ways sums up this marathon, at least in terms of a piece of dialogue. If you you go against the visuals and just a a line of dialogue, when McLean says at the end of that scene where they – have decided that they're going to be together, that they've had that moment of understanding. She says, you got to remember, I'm human. I'm sorry if I hurt you. Forgive me. I didn't mean it. I'm terribly sorry. You know I'd do anything for you, Dad. I'd do anything. Ask me. 
Would you, uh, would you clean up the place for me? Oh, could I? Sure. Oh, sure. Oh, I'd love to. Oh, I sure I'd love to. I'll, uh, i tell you what I'll do. I'll come every day before work. You just call me. You gotta remember, I'm human. I, I just feel like it's this struggle that we've seen in so many of these films, and The Bad and the Beautiful is another one, where characters are naturally, instinctively who they are, and that can sometimes come with a cost, right. and there are consequences to that, and they hurt a lot of people along the way. Right, and, 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 they're, tor- always, and they're all right, tormented. There's this, this yeah. pull in them. There is that little consciousness gnawing at them and these other characters who are openly basically pleading with them to say, just, just remember, I, I'm, I'm a human being. I, I have, I have a, a soul. I have a heart. You're, you're, you're right. really, you're destroying me. Yes. And, and, and sometimes the characters seem oblivious to that. Yeah, yeah. And look, you can, you can even get glimpses of that in Phantom Thread. Where you know where it was the another big, movie that's hot in the toxic masculinity exactly, discussion these exactly. Days. And, yes. and you know it's certainly it's certainly more woke you know yes. in terms of Paul Thomas Anderson the writer director not letting uh, the Daniel Day Lewis character off the hook I, I think I think he knows damn well he's toxic and yes. the, the Vicky Kreps character uh, Alma deals with it deals with that toxicity uh, her own way and with modest amounts of poison. And, you know, that's a whole different – that takes a story watching, in a very different – Yeah, and watching Some Came Running, I think a lot of us wish that McLean's character was written a little bit more like Absolute, the character in Phantom yeah. Thread. But that, that's simply not the, that's not the material. Yeah, it's like, it's like me looking at Cabin in the Sky at the yeah. beginning of Minnelli's career and thinking, you know, I, w- I wish – the fact that it was actually the least offensive and egregious uh, African-American stereotyping in an all-black musical or all-black film of any kind coming out of Hollywood at the time, which were few and far between. You know, look, you can take it back to Shakespeare where, uh, you know, is there there anti-Semitic attitudes in Merchant of Venice? Yes. Does he he also give Shylock the speech that says, hath not a Jew eyes? Yes. So you have to take, if you're going to deal with them at all, you have to take the worst of it with the best of it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, after the Merchant of Venice reference, I'll take this down a notch in terms of highbrow, lowbrow. <laughs> the night before I watched this film, I took my daughter to see Greece on the big screen because it was an American movie classic. Madonna sort of. horror, baby. <laughs> yeah, there you go. It's, you it's the same thing again. It is. Right? So 40th anniversary, they're showing it on some screens. The right. theater near us is playing it. My daughter, Sophie, has seen it twice before, but we wanted to go see it on Do the big screen. Do you want your daughter to turn into a tramp? Yeah, what, I guess what, so, yeah, apparently. Yeah, okay, there you go. Right. <laughs> and I, I just, I really have no point, Michael, other than sometimes the way these things line up is funny to me, <laughs> right? It's funny. Where it's like you go see Grease, which is a movie all about these characters struggling with being in love with each other and how it goes against maybe who they, they think they are right, or this right, image right, of right, themselves. Right. And you've got, you know, John Travolta at the end walking around with the Rydell Letterman's jacket right, on. Right, and, right. of course, Olivia Newton-John, Sandy, has decided to put on the black leather. And here you've got a movie where the same thing happens in the sense that you've got Dave 
being so into the goody two shoes Gwen yes. that he starts wearing the nice suit every day and he's not drinking anymore and he tries to be a different person. The respectable intellectual. Yeah. And ultimately he can't be that person. So I just thought it was interesting that I, I felt like I, I just watched this well, movie. Look, and, you know, look, Grace was written as this sort of slapdash, you know, sardonic kind of goof on that idea. But we are still living with these yes. these infernal female archetypes, especially the mm-hmm. female. And, and they're just as troubling and just as prevalent today. Uh, maybe less so in the last year just because of so many shifts in the culture. Mm-hmm. And yes, you can look at, you have to look at Some Came Running from a perspective of, you know, 60 years later now, uh, of, of, of just kind of thinking, you know, was that really what the attitudes were? Was it, and, and are we questioning, you know, mm-hmm. what, what Dave is even really thinking and saying? Hard, you know, maybe not, but at the same time, I do think Manelli visually is always giving you a reason to kind of not fully believe in what what that guy's about, and, just, and maybe you know. that's part of my struggle with it. Yeah, honestly, I mean, I I respect that choice, and yet it it seems at odds with the movie and the material. You know what I would say seriously yeah. to everybody who even is half interested in what in the film we're talking about. Take time to see the next one he made because I think if you see Home from the Hill, which stars Robert Mitchum, George Papard, uh, George Hamilton, and it's a Texas family melodrama about this sort of like fearsome patriarch uh, and these two sons, one illegitimate, one legitimate, quote unquote. And that is actually much closer to films that kind of take us into the 60s further, like HUD and certainly into like Texas melodramas you know, on television later, like Dallas and all that. But but it's, it's it's a very restrained and very dark and unsentimental film. And it probably would play better with the 2018 audience than something that's more strikingly of its mm-hmm. time and sort of the middle of the 50s, which is Some Came Running. Appropriately from Professor Phillips here, some homework for all of us. And Home from the Hill. Baby. I do want to see Home for the Hill. Now, one last little reference. Again, lining up with recent conversations or recent viewings, I only did a cursory Google search. So I don't know if there's more out there on this topic or if they've ever gone on the record about this. I didn't see anything. But how could the Coen brothers not be influenced by this film? Specifically, we recently had our Sacred Cow discussion of Miller's Crossing on the show. Mm -hmm. Gabriel Byrne's character, his obsession with Mihat. He's always got to have his hat, just like Dean Martin's Bama character here, who, just like Byrne, is constantly saying, where's my hat? Even after he's gotten into a brawl and the hat's come off, where's my hat is the first thing he's got to know. There's just really no way that's a coincidence. Godard Godard was ripping it off in contempt. I mean, it's it's that hat. That film was very big with the the Kaidu cinema crowd. It was. It was. it's it, does it have that kind of influence or uh, effect in the popular culture now? No, not at all. You look at some came running like this exotic artifact from another planet, mm-hmm. and that's, that's kind of what it is. Some came running is available to rent or stream on most platforms. If you see it and agree or disagree with what we had to say, you can email us feedback at filmspotting.net. Next week, Josh and I will finish off the marathon with. The Garlands are Best of the Minnelli Marathon Awards. Michael, we're going to have to get at least your best scene 
I think, on the record. Of your all? favorite, Your favorite Minnelli? I think I know it, actually. You've already said it. Well, you said it. It's the, it's the bandwagon, right? It's the... I, I can name you a million like that. Okay. I, well, I we like don't just have as much. enough time for that. No, I have time. You'll have to pick one. No, I have time. We could, this is a podcast. It goes okay. on forever. You're right. It's right. Fun. There's no, no it's space. Like, it's like cup show in the old days. You know, they could just go on till 4 a.m. There you go. Later this week on the podcast, Michael and I will have a review of A Quiet Place. We will use hushed tones the entire time. It will be really suspenseful, along with our top five quiet scenes. And we will announce the 2018 Film Spotting Madness Best of the 90s champion, Pulp Fiction or Fargo. Speaking of suspense, I know it's killing Michael. I see it in your face. It is. You can't wait to find out. Can I, can I, just, can I just throw in one last line? <laughs> yeah, from, and I, I want you please. To just, I want you, every time we tape, no matter what we're talking about, I want you to remember this line from Some Coming Running. Adam, I'm not one of your barroom tarts. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> I will I will keep that in mind. I'll okay. keep it close Thank to you. the heart. Thank Our you. thanks, as always, to Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Hogan. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Our production assistant is Andy Mitchell. For Film Spotting, for Michael Phillips, I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. Film Spotting is listener supported. Join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com and get access to ad free episodes, monthly bonus shows, our weekly newsletter, and for the first time, all in one place, the entire Film Spotting archive going back to 2005. That's at filmspottingfamily.com.